This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome back to the Knowledge at Wharton podcast. I'm Rachel Kipp, Associate Editorial Director of the Knowledge at Wharton website. We're here today with Wharton professors Sunny Tambay and Peter Capelli to talk about a new paper they've written about the use of artificial intelligence in human resources. Sunny and Peter, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks. Now, one of the points you make pretty early on in the paper is that while AI is invading lots of different industries and sectors, that there are some special concerns when it comes to human resources. Could you talk a little bit about what some of those challenges are? Um, yeah, so I think I think that uh, one of the uh, points this paper tries to make is that when you talk to HR practitioners and they see their colleagues in finance and marketing using uh, these technologies so um, with so much success, they're, you know, part, of the, part of the question they ask is, why does it seem so hard for us? And I think part of the point we wanted to make was that there are systemic and structural differences for HR that do make it uh, harder. For example, um, when you're building a system like this, you need to know what the kind of the right answer is, what a good employee looks like. And defining that in HR is already a difficult, a difficult thing to do. Uh, I think, too, we should probably acknowledge our third author, who is Valeria Kubovich, who's also a senior fellow here in our Center for Human Resources. I think, you know, broadly defined, sort of saying, I think, exactly what Sunny just said in a slightly different way, um, that uh, the language of data science is a language of optimization. And uh, the idea is that if we figure out what the goal is and we can figure out what is associated with that goal, then we can apply this to decisions going forward. The language of human resources, which is coded in law, has an awful lot to do with fairness questions. And fairness and optimization don't often go together very nicely, right? And so, you know, you could get algorithms, and certainly we've seen these, that will tell you here are the people to hire, and the people to hire are just like the ones who've done well before. These algorithms are backward-looking. They're based on data from the past. So the people who have done well in the past are white males. You probably would not want to pursue that algorithm as a hiring strategy, even though the algorithm machine learning would say that's the thing to do. Now, how widespread is the use of AI in HR right now? I mean, how unusual or usual is it to have like a data scientist working in HR or maybe more likely to have HR departments that are contracting with outside vendors to have these types of tools? Ooh, uh, I think, uh, so we've, we've spent some time with companies. We have a regular group of companies now that come together to talk about this. And Sunny created the acronym for this, CODER, very clever, Conference on Digital Human Resources. And my sense, with Sunny, you can correct me on this, is talking to these folks who are typically all data scientists in human resources. So they're all there. Uh, they're struggling mightily just to get data together to analyze and this says a lot about the reality of trying to work with human resource data. So here's a typical problem. We have data on employee performance. It's filed in this data set over here. We have data on hiring and the attributes of applicants. That's in this data set over here. But by the way, as soon as somebody is hired, we tend to throw that data out. Um, so the biggest problem they've got is can we get these data sets together to talk to each other? And that's not so unusual, except we run into these stories about 
The person running this silo doesn't want to share the data with this group over here. So it's a data management ex- exercise, but it's also a political exercise internally. So I, I think, and I think one of the uh, really interesting things about the two questions you asked, which is how common is the use of AI and um, how often do you see data scientists? There's some distance in HR between those two things because there's there are a lot of people, um, seems to be a lot of hiring, a lot of people bringing data science into the HR function, but some of the issues that, like that Peter raised dealing with data and so on have a uh, almost a paralytic effect on you know, now that we have these data scientists, what can we do with them? And so um, you know, both of those things, so you can have data scientists, but the ability to translate that to actual AI um, is, has, been, has become a struggle in HR. And how does, so I mean, how does developing and using algorithms differ from like a traditional HR practice or the way that it's been traditionally done? Uh, Okay, let's take an example. Let's look at hiring. So uh, the way hiring was done a generation ago when they actually took it much more seriously than they do now is that we would come in as a candidate and you would give us an IQ test and a personality test and structured interviews and maybe work samples and all that stuff. And so we'd have five different criteria. You get five different scores. And then the hiring manager would look at the five different scores. Maybe they have discretion over how to weight them, but they would say, okay, I'm going to Go with Rachel on this one, and here's why. Here's the she scored well on three out of five, et cetera. What happens now with these algorithms is they might take all that information, those five elements, uh, and other things, anything else they could find too. They look at your resume, everything on it. They look at your background, everything on it. Uh, and they look at things that you might think are irrelevant, uh, like one of the great examples was commuting distance. Uh, and they'd throw them into a model and they would look at how that – they'd build this model to relate as closely as possible to the performance of employees on the job in the past. Let's look at their IQ, their board scores, their work samples, their interviews, et cetera. And as a result, you get one score. So the difference now is when you get the machine learning-based algorithm, you don't get five scores on five different items. You get one measure. And unpacking that is extremely difficult to do. What's driving that one measure? Well, that's hard to say. Um, But you get one score. And so it's quite different. In some ways, it's much simpler. And in some ways, it's much more powerful than what we were doing before. And it might actually be a much better predictor. Um, But it's also complicated because if you think about these fairness issues, somebody asks you, what's driving that measure? You say, well, I don't know. There are these 10 things. <laughs> you know. and, and another point of tension it raises is when you have a, a system like that, it's what uh, practitioners call explainability sometimes. So you have uh, all this data going into a prediction. With the old system, maybe it's easier to say, well, these are the reasons I arrived at this conclusion. Uh, with the the sort of basket uh, type of approach, it's harder to back out and say, well, this is how we got there. You just have a prediction. It's hard to figure out how you got there sometimes. And I would think that might also create some legal challenges just because when you have cases where people bring unfair hiring complaints or something like that, that it is it does all come down to, well, give me the reason why this person didn't get hired. Yeah, exactly. And especially if gender is one of those issues that's uh, in the – one of those factors that's in the mix. And even if you take gender out, let's say – there are attributes that are correlated with gender sometimes, like the courses you took in college and things like that. And can we really be sure that um, those are not the factors driving the score in some big way? And the answer is it's hard to know. 
Now, one of the things you studied this in part using a workshop that actually brought together, I think, both real life HR practitioners and also researchers. Can you talk a little bit about that and some of the findings that came from it? Uh, so we've done a couple of these, and the first one was uh, we brought our data science colleagues in from the engineering school, people who are data scientists as opposed to statisticians who work with um, human resources. Um, and so we brought those folks in, and we brought in people who have data science jobs inside companies. Uh, and I think um, there was uh, enormous sympathy for the problems that the data scientists have actually trying to do this kind of work. Um, I think also there are some things that the data scientists know that have not worked their way down into the actual practice, right? So there's a, there's a gap there where the data scientists have thought a lot of these problems about many of these problems already of things like explainability, and it hasn't filtered down. So that was, I think, kind of interesting. Um, I think also because this is an emerging frontier in a sense, just getting people in the same room who are working on the same problem, you, you, you learn a lot, right? And so um, for me, I found it very interesting that, you know, we talk about data being sort of the beginning of the pipeline for AI and data being the new oil and so on. And the, the notion of, of, of that just getting the data together, as Peter was mentioning earlier, can be just so difficult uh, for a variety of reasons. Part of it has to do with old, old databases, legacy systems. Part of it has to do with GDPR-type regulations. But it's almost a – it's such a high – uh, hurdle uh, for a, a data science team to have to cross that it can uh, it really be a big, big uh, constraint. So I was going to say as an example of that, so, so one of our colleagues, Susan Davidson, in this data science, works on the problem of missing data. And one of the big problems that people have in organizations is the data is often pretty messy and there are often pieces of it not there or they skipped over this thing. And the data scientists have thought about that a lot, and they figured out how to work with missing data, very small data sets in particular, and how to do sophisticated data science stuff with data that you'd think was too small to do it. And that's pretty useful to these folks who actually have to do it, and it hasn't quite made it over yet. Now, in addition to complexity, you had identified in the paper four kind of key challenges facing the adoption of AI in HR. Could you kind of go through those really quickly? So... Um I think we talked about definition of a good employee. So what 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 the what you're trying to optimize on, as Peter said earlier, right? I think that in itself is a difficult thing for uh, organizations to define, especially when so much of work is team based. Um, so that was um, uh, the first one. I think we talked about data size. Uh, when we think about most AI applications, it, it's pretty short work to generate millions of observations. If you're thinking about Advertising, for instance, you have clickstream data, lots of people viewing ads and clicking. Finance, you've got trades going on all day. But HR data, usually you know, maybe one per employee if you're talking about churn or if you're talking about compensation. So limitations to data uh, are another obstacle. I think the fairness thing, I think fairness was another uh, criteria So there were, or challenge. So the, uh, the fairness issues Peter was, uh, talking, Peter was talking about earlier, which is you have these algorithms and sometimes they make – predictions in ways that disadvantage certain groups, and sometimes it's, it's hard to figure out that you even did that because of the explainability uh, problems. And then um, the last, uh, the fourth one I'm, I'm drawing, I can't. Yeah, what's the fourth one? I can't yeah. remember either. I think it was employee reactions. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so here's an example of employee reactions. It comes to this explainability thing. Um, Right now, supervisors have a fair amount of power in the workplace. They might control your schedules, for example. 
And uh, if you move strongly in this direction of algorithms, the algorithms start to make those decisions instead. So we figured out, let's say, for example, in our work group, who has to work on Saturdays? And the algorithm tells you, okay, this is, uh, it's you, and then it's you and you and you. Well, I get two Saturdays in a row. Um, who do I complain to? Well, I, I can't complain to my supervisor because she didn't do it, right? And she says, I don't know. Here's I the can't name. complain to the robot. Yeah, here's the name of the software programmer in Silicon Valley who came up with the algorithm, right? Uh, and also, I can't complain to my supervisor, nor is my supervisor able to do anything about it. So the supervisor can't say, I understand this was not fair, uh, but we'll take care of you next week, right? Uh, and so one of the issues we might think about it, the extent to which you move in this direction, it really centralizes authority and it disempowers uh, supervisors, which makes their work m much more difficult. You know, we're, I think, increasingly recognizing that that connection between direct reports and supervisors is kind of the heart of the organization. It's the heart of how employees feel about their employer. And you're taking power away from them and you're making that intersection weaker. And have we thought through what that's going to mean? I think the answer is no. Well, and that was my kind of my follow-up question is, so looking at these challenges, what are some of the key takeaways here for companies about kind of getting past those or confronting those at all stages of the HR cycle? Uh, I'd be careful, I would say, is the, is the main one. And that is uh, think through exactly what the – or try to think through what are the consequences of this when you're done. So let's say, you know, we're going to have an algorithm to predict who gets which assignments. Okay, how do we do it now? What's going to change if we do this? What do you imagine the complaints are going to be? And how are we going to, to deal with those complaints? You know, I'd say another piece of advice is be really careful about vendors uh, because uh, it's hard to know what they're doing. Where did these algorithms come from? They're never built on your own data. So the fact that somebody's got a whiz-bang story about what this algorithm will do for you, you don't know it's true. Um, and so you want to make sure, I'd say before you really invest in these any of these algorithms from a vendor, that if they're not building it for you, if it's come from someplace else, that you get to test it with your own data to see if it works for you. Among other things, you got no legal protection against adverse uh, impact claims unless you can show that this algorithm predicts in your own workplace, right? So I'd say those are my two big ones. Now, in terms of, I think one of the things that you mentioned in the paper is this idea of maybe having councils or internal councils or even external ones to kind of vet algorithms before they go into practice to look mm -hmm. at some of these issues about bias or legal implications or how to sort of empower employees can you talk a little bit more about how that would work? Uh, I think uh, we'll blame Valeria on this one because I think this idea came from him. And I think it came from uh, ideas that were generated at Google and other places about um, data privacy issues. And that is trying to think through uh, in advance before you execute or make some of these changes. What do you think the implications will be? What should the standards be? How should we be thinking about these decisions? Let's see if we can work this out rather than introduce it and then figure out what all the problems are. And I think the the history of this has not been great, frankly. I think the uh, the people who have tried to do this, typically private companies, have lost patience doing it. Um, so I think it's probably going to have to be done by 
some institution or organization above the level of individual vendors and somebody who has a bigger stake in the outcome. If you're a vendor, you know, and the people can't decide, are you willing to hold up sales of this algorithm for six months while you're waiting to see what the councils come up with in terms of their advice, right? Now, is there any advice for companies? I know you mentioned that one of the biggest issues for a lot of companies is that the data is kind of trapped in these silos, even within larger HR departments. Is there any advice for kind of getting the data out of the silos and everybody using it kind of across the board or more collectively? So I think I think that that was one of the most interesting discussions that that we heard about these the 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 difficulties that the companies were facing when it came came to just federating different data sets to make even simple. Uh, predictions. I think part of the challenge here is that when you're talking about data science, the outcome is inherently uh, it's uncertain. It's explore, exploratory. It's experimental. Uh, meanwhile, the costs are big because you've got data living in different organizations, and there's you know, there's difficulties in accessing uh, data sets. And so, I think um, in terms of recommendations, I think one of the important things for me, uh, what I've heard in terms of feedback uh, from practitioners, was just establishing the common ground that there is something substantially different here, right? And so I think that's uh, that's part of it, that if you think about the way um, Peter makes the point that we have a common understanding that from a marketing perspective, companies are trying to make money. If they have a better machine to do it, they'll use it, and that makes sense. Uh, socially, we don't have the same understanding about HR, right, how machines will be used to um, affect HR decisions. And so some of these issues are so they cut across the organization in so many different ways and, and across organizations as well, not just within an organization, that it will take something like um, an AI council, it's coming come back to your question, to take these data sets and think about what are they being used for and so on. It, it's an organization-wide decision to some degree, not just um, – it, it has to sort of float above the HR data science team. You know, I think uh, – also I think on that, to manage expectations uh, better is probably useful. So uh, as Sonny was saying, these are big bets to do even the simplest thing uh, because the biggest problem is getting the data together. Spend your money on database management before you start hiring fancy data scientists, right? Uh, because unless the data is together, it's going to be worthless to have all that power. But somebody above uh, at a pretty high level has got to decide – the answers to these questions really are important. And so you do have to share the data. So we had heard from a couple of companies, as I recall, where they were making vendor decisions uh, in a council-like way, right? So the performance management people could not buy a software system for performance management where the data could not be shared with the hiring people over here, right? So trying to figure out what the, you know, meta sort of goals are here that lie above each of these individual decisions and making sure that we can, at the very beginning, conduct these bigger exercises and that somebody at the top is saying, they're really worth doing and let's prioritize them. Here's the most important one to do. Let's go for that one first, right? I think there's often a view that you just turn these data scientists loose and they're going to find all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, and that is unlikely. Uh, first of all, just to be able to do anything is quite difficult. And the questions in human resources are ones that people have studied for a very, very long time. And the idea that you're going to find some simple aha breakthrough um, that no one's thought about before 
which maybe in marketing you might find because nobody's looked at a lot of these relationships before, is much less likely. On the other hand, current practice in a lot of human resources is so lousy, to be honest, that the opportunities uh, for making some progress are pretty good. Even if you're not going to generate the silver bullet solution, being better than what we're doing right now might not be all that hard to do. And uh, that's a reasonable thing to shoot for. And now in terms of employees, I mean, you mentioned the employee-manager relationship. I mean, these kind of things are going to impact employees, like really every single employee down to the rank-and-file employees who may not really understand much of how this works. Like how can companies kind of educate employees and sort of bring them into the decision-making so this is not sort of like a slap in the face? This is the explainability thing that uh, Sandy was talking about. That is, can you explain to some new hire why they didn't get the promotion because the algorithm score said 86 for them and 92 for somebody else? What does that mean, right? Uh, And I think the the complication is the company themselves, the employer has to figure out themselves what it means. Uh, You know, how do we unpack this algorithm and uh, how is it built in the first place, right? Uh, So that we can, we know ourselves the answer to those questions before we talk to the employees uh, about it. Well, and even empower managers because I think they need to have the answer for why do I have to work two Saturdays in a row? Yeah, they and uh, but the, uh, part of the problem with explainability is the answer you might have to give them is not one that the employees particularly like, which is, uh, you know, for reasons of optimization in terms of your fit with the work needs, you just happen to have to work three Saturdays in a row. And the employee says that's not fair and the algorithm says what's fair? Well, does that speak to maybe having some sort of system in place also for kind of the human touch to override the algorithm and say, well, maybe this doesn't make sense from an optimization standpoint, but it does in terms of, you know, my team coming together standpoint and people being productive because they feel like they want to be here. And that's an, a, real, a really interesting area, I think, of of design right now, right, and of, of, of AI design and thinking about how you separate the uh, algorithmic piece of this from the the high touch piece of this, right? And I know in, in medicine they're thinking about this as well. They're thinking about the notion that you can make a decision, but you probably don't want the machine to deliver that decision to uh, a patient or a patient's family. And so I think when we think about the design of, of systems in HR, there might be some very similar issues that start to arise. Now, one thing you say in the paper in terms of like how companies can figure out what questions to start with, one thing that maybe sound might sound kind of counterintuitive to people is you kind of say don't start with the big questions maybe start with smaller bites of things that are a little more adapt that are a little more easily graspable. Yeah, I think uh, some of that is because of explainability, right? We're we're trying to decide, let's say, um, what to encourage you to take in terms of training next. Uh, and we're doing this based on, you know, uh, what people in the past have done after they have done what you have done so far. So people like you in the past, they've done this next job. This kind of training makes sense for you. You know, something like that that doesn't have quite as big a bang as you get this promotion, you don't, um, might be the way to start because it's an easier thing to swallow, I think, you know. So uh, starting out with simpler questions, partly because um, many organizations, they're not so sophisticated at those simple questions anymore. Uh, is probably a reasonable thing to do. You know, in the really complicated questions, it's harder to get an answer that's going to be useful and even harder to get an answer that you can explain. And some examples you had given are like employee wellness or something or in terms like benefits, things like that, like selections. 
Well, so wellness ones might be uh, to offer you advice about um, diet and how to quit smoking or things like that. You know, people like you in the past have succeeded in quitting smoking when they pursued the following strategies, right? So uh, those sorts of things are, you know, easier places to start in terms of explainability. We're not making you do it. It's not like having you have to show up every Saturday, three nights, three weekends in a row. So, you know, getting used to seeing them is probably safer that way. And you can also uncover if there's weird things, biases, for example, in terms of what's coming up. You haven't made anybody do them. You can't be sued for that, I don't think, you know, if you're just presenting the options to people. So, you know, starting with those things is probably simpler. Another point, I think, in favor of starting with something tractable um, is that so much of this data science process is learning and exploration. You learn about your data, you learn about your capabilities, you learn about uh, your employees. And so it's it's helpful to have a sort of a fixed point, at least when the you know, the question which you're asking before embarking into the, the unknown questions. Um, so you get up to speed on what you can do with the data, what your data can tell you, what your people can tell you. And, and I think, you know, it, it's useful, I think, for employers and listeners, for everybody to understand how this use of data actually works. I mean, I think much as I would like to assume that we're, have people think that we're like wizards with this stuff, you know, that we go into the computer, we take this data and then, you know, magic comes out. You know, it's an awful lot of just plugging away at stuff. Uh, oh, there's a problem with this data over here. There's some missing observations here. It takes a very long time just to get the data into a format where you're pretty sure what it is. And then you look at things, you don't find anything, and then you look again in a different way and you find something over it. There's a lot of trial and error, and there's a lot of an experimentation going on in terms of coming up with something that's kind of credible. Uh, and it takes a long time to do it, right? So I think there's, there's a view that this is kind of almost like magic, right? You get this data together, you hire a data scientist, they go behind the curtain, and poof, they come back in 10 minutes with the answer. All the, the problems answers. are solved. Yeah, right. Uh, and I wish it was so, but it's not. <laughs> and what's next for this research? It's a good question. <laughs> a good question. I think I think one of the things that it it, it um, underscores is that there are, are are so many questions that we that so many big questions that we just the way it maps to legal frameworks, the way it maps to social frameworks, um, a lot of these challenges that are emerging just for HR are, are uniquely big and uniquely difficult, and so probably require um, precise research or, or, or pointed research agendas to really get to those answers. When we think about um, AI councils, whether they're the best governance format, and when we think about um, how people react to algorithmic decisions and so on, all of this is, a lot of this is new territory, and a lot of it um, could, would really benefit from dedicated kind of uh, research programs. I think, you know, in the short term, I think what we're hoping to do is just to see what companies are doing. You know, are these are there new algorithms that are being done in a different way? Are there new techniques being tried out? And just getting a sense of what's sensible. I mean, I think the good thing about the vendor world from our purposes and some employers too is they're always throwing up new and different solutions. You know, many of them don't make sense, uh, but occasionally some do. And so we're in the happy position of just being able to watch them and not have to live with them. So I think just seeing what happens next is probably what's next for us. Peter and Sonny, thanks so much for being with us. 
Thanks. Thank you. You can find all of Knowledge at Wharton's podcasts, articles, and more on our website, which is knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can also find all of our podcasts on Apple's podcasting app and your other favorite podcatcher. If you like what you hear, please leave us a like, comment, or review. It really does help like-minded folks to find the show. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.